You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Andrew B. and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we reflected on what may turn out to be one of the strongest trend-following years for a decade or two, but also how different trends can look and how you have to deal with that. Also, I must encourage you to listen to the midweek conversation we published with Annie Duke. You know, she's not only a world champion poker player, but also someone who's incredibly smart when it comes to decision-making, especially during uncertainty. And her new book, Quit, is full of lessons that we as investors can and should adopt and I really hope that you'll take an hour out of your time to listen to this. So head out and check uh, these episodes out once you're done listening to Andrew and I today. Andrew, it is great to have you on the podcast. I've very much been looking forward to this uh, conversation. How are you doing? How are things where you are today? Things are great. Things are great. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm very excited for the rest of the fall. As you say, it has been quite a big year and and uh, quite an extraordinary market. So thank you so much for having me on on, on today. It's a delight. No, to be absolute here. pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, there's lots of things that we're going to dive in today. We have some great topics that you brought along. We have tons of questions that came in. We'll see if we can get to uh, as many of them as, as possible, of course. Before we head into any of that, as usual, let me just uh, run through kind of a brief, brief summary of the week. Um, there was precious little for the Fed to celebrate this week. The all-important uh, employment report has been relegated to second-tier status as the producer and consumer inflation measures take center stage as the most important measure of the Fed's success, or as in case may be this week's report, failure. But measures came in above expectations and didn't really offer any indication that the rate hikes to date have been successful. The markets reacted mostly as expected. The 30-year bond, after a brief short-covering rally on the day of the CPI release, closed the week just one basis points below 4%, and the two-year note is closing the week at around 4.5%. Fed fund futures reset materially higher, with the May 2023 contract indicating a peak Fed funds rate now at 4.935. Equity markets staged a similar short covering rally on the day of the CPI release, initially uh, punching through the lows of 2022, but staging a blistering rally to end the day close to the session high. But investors should be cautious of that kind of market reaction as selling returned on Friday and the market feels pretty heavy as we head into the weekend. Next week, it's all about housing. As the various entities release the housing market index, building permits, housing starts, and existing home sales. With mortgage rates topping 7%, one should not expect upside surprise on any of these reports. Anyway, let me bring you in again, Andrew, here, just to touch on things that are sort of catching your attention in terms of maybe markets or performance of certain strategies. Maybe not your own strategy right now, but we'll deal with that in a few minutes. But what's generally sort of uh, keeping you interested at the moment? Well, I think I think there's a growing realization, um, I mean, to put it in relatively simple terms, of how strange the 2010s were. 
Um, I think we got anesthetized, or a lot of people got anesthetized by by you know the repeated rounds of monetary easing. And I think, if, but you know, if you dial it back, I started you know as a history major, and I've always been fascinated with history and and how views of things change. If you went back and said, you know, this is what's going to happen in the 2010s, we're going to, you know, somebody's going to find $40 trillion to spend, as Dan Druckenmiller said, and and you know, we're going to go through all of this, and we're going to go 10 years without inflation coming back, they would have thought you were lunatics. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think there are just going to be great stories about the end of the 2010s where, you know, you're going to hear about tech guys sitting around in a room and saying, <clears throat> you know, we thought we were overpaying when this thing had a $10 billion valuation and four people. Now it's at 70 billion. It hasn't sold the product yet. And somebody's saying, Are you out of your minds? We should sell it. And then the guy's saying, Well, where do we put it? You know, and so um I think I think what we're seeing is is this just massive multi-year unwind of a very, very, very um uh, peculiar moment in history uh that we'll look back and say it was anomalous. You know, it was it was as strange as the dot-com crisis. And I think that's you know part of the reason we're seeing this major reset across asset classes as people digest it and and they've been fighting it every step of the way. And I think that goes, you know, as we'll, we'll touch on, I think that's where you guys have had such an enormous advantage this year. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. And I think on top of that, and and, and I think you're right in terms of the bubbles, et cetera, et cetera, but as uh, for, for people at least who have listened to, uh, to the podcast before, I mean, my own view is also that we've come to this end of this carry regime that lasted for 20 years but it came at the end of globalization and i worry well i wouldn't say i worry but i actually think we're heading into uh, or we are now having started sort of deglobalization and and everything that comes with it um and um as as you kind of uh, also allude to um i think what we've lost during those 20 years is our kind of imagination of what markets can do uh, and I think we have to reimagine that uh, and 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 be aware um, that um, things may not um, be uh, how they have been for for quite a while. And and as I'm sure both of you, <laughs> you and I uh, have seen, I mean, many of the people who actually sit on top of the uh, portfolios today and and manage these portfolios have never experienced, um, you know, inflation or or you know, bear markets uh, of, of of sort of longer character. So, anyways. Enough to talk about um, very shortly. Um, I just want to sort of uh, give a quick update uh, on the trend following side uh, this week. You know, very similar as what we saw in Q3. The first couple of weeks of Q4 have started with a continuation of the downtrend in fixed income markets, spiced up with an extra boost from all the fallout of the failed tax cut policies in the UK. Uh, we've also seen a continuation of the long dollar trade and again where we've seen some increased volatility in the currency market surrounding the British pounds. Equities have been relatively muted, um, but I think that maybe long-term trend followers are slowly starting to build up some short exposure or stance in this sector. Uh, grains are trying to stage a comeback to the upside while precious metals and their bullish dreams got crushed this week with gold and silver near the lows of the year. But all in all, trend followers have had a positive first half of October. My own trend barometer closed the week at 45. That's actually relatively neutral. Um, and uh, although these numbers that I always quote are as of Thursday night, Friday seems to be a good day. I just need to look at Andrew's Andrew's product, then I know it was a good day for everyone in the CTA business. It's going to be my new Friday indicator. But the beat up, the beat up index was up, uh, or is up 1.19% as of Thursday, up 20.85 for the year. 
Sogdian CTA index up 1.2% for the um, uh, month so far, up 27.62% um, for the year. Sogdian trend up about a percent, up 3686 for the year. And the short-term traders index down two basis points, uh, up 1297 for the year. And in the uh, traditional world, uh, MSCI World Index is down eight bips for the year. Uh, sorry, for the October, and down twenty six point four six for the year. And the World Government Bond Index another down month, uh, down one point three eight so far month to date. Anyways, now as I mentioned, we have quite a lot of questions that came in, but I think we need to have a little bit of context before we jump in there. So I'm gonna. Start out with some of the uh, topics that you mentioned, Andrew, but I also, before we get to that, I'm just wondering, and I don't want you to re necessarily cap the same sort of journey story that you've done on so many other places, but, <laughs> again but, and again. but it is a kind of a funny, you said you started in history and you ended up in managed futures. I am curious how the hell that worked out. So, uh, so uh, can you just uh, shorten the gap a little bit between history and managed futures? Sure. So, so, um, First of all, thank you, everyone uh, in the space for having had a spectacular year, because um, we're obviously riding on your coattails. Um, so the um, so we we approach the managed future space just from the opposite direction as as everybody else. We were building a fund in Europe. Uh, it was a usage fund, and we and we were like, what's the best diversifier we can get to reduce equity risk and to protect capital? Because we had this kind of dream of can we replicate the golden age of hedge funds, and that was two thousand through two thousand seven. Can you? Can you not go down if there's a bear market and then go back to making money? And so we wanted to have some equity exposure in it. You've seen a lot of products out there that have kind of a, a match of equity exposure and something. And and when we looked at managed futures, again, I'm not a managed futures guy, as should be absolutely obvious to everybody at this point. Um, but we thought, God, that's two incredible characteristics. It's got no correlation. So it drives down our beta. And that was actually important to the mandate. But you know, look how well it did during the dot-com crisis and, and the GFC. And so, you know, we, what we, this is around 2015 and there was all this talk of like, you know, bank swap products and, and GSA was out there with a 50 basis point product and sweeping in money. And there was talk about commoditization and Winton was, you know, kind of waving its arms and saying, you know, we're not going to do trend anymore. And, um, and so, you know, we looked at these other ways of implementing it and we couldn't really find anything that we liked. And so what we really wanted was something boring and index-like. And but we needed to be able to do it in also a very, very cost-efficient way. And so we happen to have, I mean, I've for 15 years I've been the guy who's kind of focused on hedge fund replication, but 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 we're not dogmatic about what we do. It's about getting to the right outcome. And and so what we basically realized was: look, you've got this incredible return stream there. And but we have absolutely no idea who to predict who's going to do well next year. We have we don't have a twenty five billion dollar bat where we can walk in and say we'll give you a billion dollars, but do it at a you know very commercially reasonable price. Uh, and so so I you know me and the two terrific quants that I worked with sat around for a good part of six months figuring out can we do this and how can we do that. And lo and behold, we created a product in a usage form, and then. You know, several years later, we went into the U.S. ETF market, but with a very, very different thesis. I mean, it's it's be some sort of interesting to talk about because we actually felt that there was. I'm known as somebody who's not. I'm sort of a jack of all trades, but I spend a lot of time thinking about industry dynamics, 
you know, how on earth is it that private equity firms raise $25 billion funds when nobody in their right mind thinks that, and, and, and you've got 10 guys who are doing this. Um, so it was really about the ETF world. And it was about some of the things we talked about in terms of the 2010s and how people were building portfolios and how that would change over time and what allocators who've been going through the same kinds of thinking that we've been going through would ultimately need. And that's ultimately why we launched an ETF in the U.S., Well, what happened to the Usage product? Um, It's I'm still there. Here. Yeah, we okay. manage it for for a U.S. firm called SEI. Um, okay. It's up. It, it is absolutely crazy because it's entirely replication based. It's the top performing multi strategy, like by a wide margin. It's the top performing multi strategy um, uh, usage hedge fund product since we launched, and we hit our seven year anniversary. And it basically, you know, we were clocking along at about six percent per annum during the good years. And this year we're up seven, Great. and it's and it's entirely because we we loaded this thing with a forty percent allocation to manage futures, um, and so it's 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 an astonishing product that was really just built. But again, it was the same ethos. SCI wanted us to build something for their own portfolios. They didn't care about selling it to the outside world at first. It was all about, you know, we want to be able to take five percent of our portfolios and look back in five years and have something that can make mid to high single digit returns during normal periods and then preserve capital or do better in a bad period. And, um, and, uh, so it's out there. It's it. That's, yeah, I was, yeah. that's why I was, that's why I was in London. That's why I was in Zurich a, a week sure. and a half ago. And then Madrid is, you know, kind of talking to people about it. Fantastic. Good stuff. Well, today we're probably mostly going to spend our time talking about your uh, CTA replication, uh, product, uh, DBMF. Um, so in terms of the topics that you sent over, You, you talk about you're trying to solve a different um, problem than others in the space. Um, is that something we need to flush out a bit more, or do you think we've done that uh, in, in in your introduction there? I just want to make sure I cover all your well. We're points. Tr we're trying we're trying to be above average, okay, right? And that's and we're trying to be consistently above average. So one one of the great value investing quotes came from Howard Marks, and somebody said, "How come you guys are always in the top quartile?" And he said, "Because we never leave the second quartile." And what he meant was we do a little bit better by buying things cheaply. And then if we have a margin of safety, we won't go down as much in, the, in during the worst of the times. And, and so our, all of our products are designed to do that, to, to incrementally. It's, you know, and and the, the only effective way we've, we've found to do that is to squeeze out fees and expenses where we can and try to marginally outperform. Um, so so that's that's it. And, and it's, 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 yeah, it's a very, very different ethos. It's about... You know, if we could create a fund of hedge fund product where you and all of your brilliant peers would work for 50 basis points and, you know, each take 10 percent or five or 10 percent of the of the capital and we could put 50 basis points on top and deliver something in an ETF world with perfect transparency, that would be a, an earth shattering product. But but I don't see the industry doing that anytime soon. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so. You also write about, you know, how you decided this was likely to work. So I'm curious about that. And then, I'm, and then I want to transition in a little bit to the mechanics of, of how it's done before we start answering a lot of the questions that, that came in. Um, so, um, so how did you get to the point that this is the way to do it? Uh, so everything, the way we started was always um, what we have are risk models. Right. They're they're expansions of style of Sharpe's returns based style analysis, um, and again, as a non quant, if you told me in 2007 that you could take a statistical model with a whole bunch of factors, just look at recent returns of 
a pool of managers and be able to figure out with great accuracy, are they long or short this position or long or short that position? Um, it didn't make sense to me, right? It's too abstract. It's too weird. I can't think in eight or 10 dimensions. Um, but um, but the way that we looked at the space was, um, and again, we, we looked at the swap products. We I wrote something talking about how there was too much dispersion. They didn't seem to be picking, do, doing nearly as well as the hedge funds that were supposed to be commoditizing. Uh, I looked at GSA and things like that, and I thought, well, of course, everyone wants it because they've been up 20% a year for three years running, and people think it's going to continue. And then so we looked at things like persistence of returns in the space. And, and again, we're, I've been doing this for a very, very long time. I've, you know, if you'd asked me in the end of 2019 to pick one hedge fund, I would have told you Renaissance Institutional Equities Fund, and they suddenly went down 30%. So um, I, I'm very humble about my ability to make that prediction. Um, but so we did is we then, we then said, all right, here's, it's, it's actually an interesting space. There's a lot of daily data. You know, we can look at, there's mutual funds, there's usage funds, there's uh, daily reported indices like the SOCGEN CTA index, you've got the trend index, you've got, and so we started to look around with it. And, you know, the sort of the non-quantitative part of it was to go out and talk to allocators. And and because my belief in hedge funds is generally it's always the big trades, right? It's, it's you know, if you get the big trades right, uh, I mean, if you had to sum up managed futures this year, I'd say they got inflation right. And you can break that down into a series of trades in different times, but there's no managed futures fund that was betting on deflation and has made money this year. Um, and so, um, so then what we do is, you know, the way that we end up modeling things is, is not trying to get to three decimal places. We want to get the broader things right. And so when I talked to allocators and I said, like, look, if you had to, to figure out, you know, the positioning of these guys today, do you need a lot of these incremental positions? You need 65 contracts to do it. And a lot of the feedback I got from allocators is no, it's 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 10 positions. It's eight positions. Um, you know, if they're uh at there may be a point in time when you really need uh uh the British pound, but most of the time you don't. Um if you've got the yen and the euro, which is I think has been the case this year. So the way that we do our analysis is to basically try to set up naive models where we change things around a lot to test for robustness. And so we, we took hundreds and hundreds of combinations of different futures contracts. We looked at lots of different window lengths, looks at lots of different um, data pools. And what we found, the, the results were surprisingly good, that it's not perfect. It's an approximation, but with almost any, as long as we had diversification across the major markets, right? If somebody said, you know, can you replicate managed futures with the SP? PY or something, of course you can't. Um, but if you have exposure across different asset classes and you have the biggest kind of most liquid instruments in those, um, it, you get with an 80 to 85 percent correlation, and um, and you can implement it. So so you get, you create something that's almost like a synthetic index, and and for most allocators that's hideously boring, right? Because they want to assemble their own cars from it. From our perspective, we wanted something that was just a almost a naive representation of the biggest positions, the biggest trades that we could then implement efficiently on our own. Now, and so I'm going to go off a little bit of my own kind of script because some of the things you say leads me to to ask you some some questions. For example, um, so just maybe just for for my benefit, I know of course you have fixed income, you have currency, you have uh, equities. 
I know you trade oil. I think you trade gold. Is there a lot of other sort of commodities in there, or is that sort of pretty much the universe? It's, so yeah, it's it's really ten major okay. instruments. It's, okay, okay, it's, fair it's enough. Two, twos, tens, and thirties. Uh, it's gold and oil, uh, S and P, EAFE, and EM, and uh, yen and euro. Okay. Very, very interesting. So you mentioned this thing about getting correlation right. And I think that, I mean, I think for sure you've, you've proven that. But, and again, I'm not a quant like yourself, um, but what I have... Oh, learned, if you're not a quant, I'm definitely not a quant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I have learned in the last 30 plus years doing this is that, because a lot of people tell me when I go out, you know, and I say, okay, we're a trend follower. And they would say, well, don't worry, we already have one trend follower, we're fine, no problem. Um, but then once you start sort of digging into things a little bit, you realize, well, there's a big difference between one trend follower to another. But and, and of course, you overcome that by replicating an index, so I'm fully aware of that. But, but correlations doesn't explain necessarily performance. You can have high correlation, but your performance can be very different. And so how do you... Is that something you kind of take, or how do you adjust for that? Is it the correlation you just want to get right, or is it the performance of the index you want to get close to, if I can formulate it like that? Yeah, I think, I think I guess the thing, you know, I, I, I came into the, the world of working with quants 15 years ago, and if I couldn't understand it on a napkin, I didn't do it. Um, uh I've had phenomenal teachers as they've done this. And, and one of the things I've learned is that building models is a very human undertaking, you know, that, that I think people think about, I mean, the, your, your observation about the dispersion between returns is what we experienced, right? That, that in most cases, because we looked at building our own trend models, you know, it's, let's start with basic literature and try to build it. And what we found is we had this huge dashboard. And if we turn, started turning dials in different ways, we get wildly different outcomes. And when we looked at individual funds and we spoke to guys, you know, sometimes who'd been invested in them for 10 or 20 years, what we found is, you know, like a guy who had made his name in commodities 15 years later was still going to have a bigger commodity bent than the guy who'd entered the space at a different time from a different direction. And, um, and so what we found though, is the way we do it, right? So what we're looking for is that you can turn the dials and it doesn't change it much. Right. So, so one of the exercises is, what if we didn't use, if, if, if gold and oil were perfect, but natural gas and, I don't know, you know pick, pick another metal, um, uh, you, know, you had completely different results, that would set off alarm bells. And so, um, you know, this is about, um, our, our strategies have always been about trying to get the, 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 the big trades as right mm -hmm. as we can and avoid mm -hmm. getting fooled by the data. Mm. And for me, it's been a learning process in terms of what the human side of that is. Now, one of our, my partners who, you know, we kind of call him our, I mean, he's our former math professor, uh, guy who I think he proved bubbles exist mathematically so we can all breathe a sigh of relief that, uh, that bubbles are real. We didn't imagine them. Um, but, um, uh, but he also went to wall street and, and he came in it with a very, very, so when he joined us in, in, um, over a decade ago, it, he brought with it um, a he, he there was no razzle dazzle in models that impressed him, and so he was always just focused on the simplest, most straightforward way of getting to the robo ro most robust outcome. And so you know, so like if you take a model like what we have, we get fooled sometimes, 
right? The model gets fooled. Um, in our, it didn't happen in, in, in DBMF, but in our usage version, we don't trade crude oil. Um, we go into March and the model is looking for crude oil because it knows you guys are long crude oil, but it can't, right? So what does it do instead? It says, well, I'm going to find the closest thing I can find, which is a short treasury position. Okay. That was great until there was a moment a few days after the invasion when oil went up and people said, forget it, Fed hikes are off. And, and so, you know, so we gave back several points of performance um, and, and, you know, not having oil this year, that, that strategy is underperformed by probably 600 basis points. So it's up 21, not 27 or something. Uh, um, so, you know, again, our job as humans who are overseeing the models is to try to design them in a way where we don't have those, um, uh, you know, periods where the index or the target or whatever goes up 10 and we're down 10 and we're explaining it to people. If, if the target's up 10 and we're up eight, we're okay. But usually if the target's up 10, we're up, we're up you know, 12 to 15. Sure. Okay. Okay. Very interesting, actually. But by the way, why don't you trade just crude oil in that product? I'm curious. So, uh, interesting. So when we, when we launched it, there's a hard, there was a hard prohibition on using commodity, using, uh, uh, putting commodities into a usage fund. And now people use certificates and we are, you know, in the process of potentially coming into that market with, with a few more tools at our disposal. But, um, but back then, uh, people weren't really doing that. And honestly, we didn't need it. You know, it's so, so we launched in November 2015 and we're really happy in 2016. We didn't, back half of 2016, we didn't have crude oil because it, it looked like it was just an exercise in whipsawing and, and dashed hopes. Um, so it's so, but yeah, I mean, in a sense, yeah. you touch on something quite interesting, right? Because certainly I would say, um, and because we as a manager, we go through this as well, where uh, where we will be different from the index. So even though we are trend followers, we might perform very differently to even an index because within the, the indices that you replicate and in the Sokjian Trend Index, where you find the bigger managers, many of them, I would say, has gravitated into trading hundreds of markets, not just the classical 50, 60 markets like we do. Um, so there's certainly been periods where where I've had to explain uh, the difference in performance. Um, and because there's no doubt that the markets you trade do have, at least from a, if you're a manager, have quite a big impact or potentially can have a big impact on your performance. It's not just the models, it's not just the time frame, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you were, for example, in electricity or sure. Dutch net gas or whatever it might Look be. Look at TransTrend. I mean, I mean, I mean, my God, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it goes both ways, right? Because those type of firms um, have also had very quiet periods where the rest have done better. So what my point is, it goes actually both ways. And um, so so I'm kind of interested and intrigued um if, if you think that actually for you, and maybe it's because you have a whole index that you need to replicate, that it won't be such a big issue um, and that you can replicate through, let's call it the, the very liquid uh, sectors uh, mainly. That's, it's, it's intriguing to me. Yeah, so, so we, um, I mean, so going back to like kind of what our, our, how our objective is different, and maybe do you mind if I segue a little bit, talk about kind of the ETF You can do world? whatever, totally, yeah, okay. absolutely. So, so the ETF, so the whole, um, 
I've been writing about liquid alts for 15 years. And, and back to your point about somebody saying, I want trend and I'm going to pick Bob to do trend. That is, from an allocator's perspective, that's insane, right? That is, I mean, find me, a, if, if a pension plan does that, they're making a big mistake, but generally they won't, right? They'll pick four guys. They'll say, you know, this guy's a short-term specialist, a medium-term specialist. He's a counter-trend guy. He's a machine learning guy, and they'll put together a package. Um, the, the whole assembling of funds, the entire objective of assembling of funds, the entire objective of manager selection is to beat a benchmark, right? That, that, that no one in a pension plan is saying, we're putting together these four guys and we think they're going to do 20% per annum when the index does zero, right? And so, you know, Abbey Capital's whole business is built on finding the right guys so they can do enough better than the overall space to then justify their fees and add a little extra for clients. Um, and so, so in, when people went into the, when, when people took these, so these were all institutional products, right? You need, you need people who will assemble their own cars and you're offering them, everyone is offering a different part. Um, the retail and the wealth management world is very different because their big constraint. And I'm a huge believer that incredibly smart people can, if you layer lots of constraints on them, you know, it, it, it kind of ties their hands behind their back. But if you're a wealth manager and you decide you want 5% in managed futures as part of a diversified portfolio, um, you're probably not going to put five guys in there, right? You could, right? You could go into the mutual fund world and you can say, I'm going to, I'm going to pair what you guys do with man HL, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, but, but the experience of sitting down with a client when the client sees one U.S. large cap allocation, one this allocation, one allocation, and then you've got this smorgasbord of, of, of underlying funds. So what happened early on was people just picked one fund. And, and the way the people who were picking the funds were not generally not experts in the space. Um, so take AQR, right? So I think AQR did something phenomenally positive for the U.S. mutual fund space by launching their product in 2010 with 120 basis point expense ratio. Alpha Simplex came in as, as, as well. Yeah, those were, compared to the, the first version of products, which were kind of like, you know, you're a sophisticated hedge fund guy, you don't want to deal with the, the rough and tumble retail crowd, we'll build something. But it was basically, you know, there were three, 400 basis point products, which was just so incongruous with where the wealth management world has been going. Um, but so AQR did and, and Alpha Simplex did something phenomenal. And they said, we're going to basically offer an institutional quality product at reasonable fees. And that's why Cliff talks about, about you know, we're the fair fee guys. Um, the problem was that the guys on the other side th thought that, you know, if, if you're in 2015 and you say, what do I do? I've got to fill this 5% bucket. Why wouldn't you pick AQR? Right. It was they had done in line with the overall space. They're the smartest guys in the room, and um, and they were the biggest fund. So their mutual fund went to fourteen billion. Okay, it was I think it was forty percent of the overall managed future space at the time. And so when people wanted to diversify, they'd said, "Well, you know, we'll give four to AQR and one to Alpha Simplex." Um, and that I looked at that, and this has happened in several different areas. But that is, again, it's it's from an allocator, it's insane, right? Because you, what you're basically saying is, "I want a five percent emerging position in emerging markets." And I'm going to give it all to Alibaba. Like it could work, <laughs> or as you say, you can go through a long winter. 
So then what happened is then, you know, AQR very, very soon underperformed the index and, and they went down. So what do allocators do at that point, right? You're, you're the guy who's made a 5% allocation. This thing is torturing you. Every quarter, you're hoping it's going to come back because you've endorsed them, right? You've said, we've not only found this great area, we found the best guys to do it. And you're sitting across from clients and you want to talk about the, anything but that 5% allocation. So this 5% allocation becomes 30% of your time for, for years, right? And then if I sell it and then go into Alpha Simplex, which a lot of people did, then Alpha Simplex went through a bad period, not nearly as bad. Um, and so, so this this kind of this musical chairs or you know this this hamster wheel on the allocator side, um, we started writing about this over ten years ago, and and it's it's the constraint is on their side. So, what we felt on the ETF world, right, going back to the world changing, not diversifying was the right call for ten years. Just sitting in stocks and bonds, they went up every year, and and back to your point about you know and and, and they didn't look correlated. Right. I mean, oh, no, no, no. They're they're in they're inversely correlated, like, but they're going up together every year. Right. And there's this massive wind underneath them, lifting them both up. And um, and so, you know, what we thought was that at some point. The ETF world would be looking for ways to get exposure to manage futures as a strategy. And that means index. That means because because they're not going to. And by the way, in the mutual fund space, you've got plenty of good choices to one. You didn't have anything in, in, in it was a greenfield opportunity in the ETF space. And so, you know, so we we just passed a billion. We're between one and two basis points of the ETF world. It's, I mean, it's 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 not it hasn't even begun. And so so anyway, so that that was our thesis. Because remember, we're cheap, right? We we need we need scale and we need people to stay invested with us for a long period of time. And so we want the guy who's running the model portfolio to say, yeah, I can't invest with, with you guys. I can't invest with these guys. And I'm not going to take, I can't assemble a multi, you know, these, I can't invest in mutual funds. I, I just want something where I can say, here's my managed futures allocation, my, my managed futures beta or beta plus if we're right about, about fees. And then, you know, in five years, if the space is up seven, my guy's up 10 and he hasn't gone through those big drawdowns. That's that's okay. what we're trying to do. Yeah. Okay. So again, I'm going to go off because I still please, have please, so many yeah. questions. But but I I I want to I want to sort of pick your brain about some of the things you you mentioned here because it's it's super interesting to me. So first of all, you could of course argue, um, and I don't know the, the the but you know whether you pay 120 basis points to AQR or you pay 95 basis points to you, it's not going to be a massive difference. So, so, but, but I do agree that there is this, um, you know, the packaging, I think you've got absolutely right. And, and this thing about having sort of one line item that I, ideally you don't have to spend too much time on, but, but I, I was just curious because again, in my own marketing material, um, I do compare ourselves to the two indices, the two SOC gen indices. And when I look at them and I am confronted uh, with this, there is definitely a five-year period from fifteen to twenty where they were flat. They made no oh, yeah. money. Yeah. So, so, and but, but at least you could say, as a manager, you could kind of give a story. You could talk about some new research. You could talk about new markets coming in. You could, you could do something. And I was just wondering if you had gone through that period. Let's just say you had raised the billion dollars prior to twenty fifteen. Mm -hmm. Then you go through five years where the benchmark you're trying to replicate, or ideally can replicate is flat. 
wouldn't you end up in exactly the same situation as AQR where you see the money just disappear again? Because what's the story? So it, if you take, so I've, it, it, I'd say I talked about that period in two ways. One right. is I think, I think, I think that period is not going to happen again. No, no, I agree with that. That's, right, right. So that's, be, yeah. so that's, yeah, 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 I think, I think that's not, that's yes. not the base case. Yes. But, but even during that period, um, so like the SockGen CTA index is net of incentive fees, right? It's, it's a hundred, maybe 150 basis points of management fees plus incentive fees. You always have some guys who are up, some guys who are down. So on average, going through that period, maybe you've got 300 basis points of all in fees and expenses. And then also one of the things is, and I don't know what, you know, it, it's impossible to get a precise figure on this, but I talked to a lot of allocators and we spoke to guys who had run trading at a lot of different places. And when you trade 65 instruments or now the hundreds of instruments you're talking about, your trading costs are really high. Our trading costs, I mean, we are trading... 10 of the deepest and most liquid futures contracts once a week. Like, it's, we're five basis points. We're 10 basis points. I mean, we are the, we are the least interesting prime brokerage client in this entire, in this entire business. <laughs> They're like, we're not even paying for your taxi back to the office. So, so you know, our... Right. So, that, okay. That, fair enough. That's a, it's okay. Yeah. So you're, 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 what you're saying is essentially that even through flat periods, you expect that there's going to be something for you that will show up as some kind of outperformance, essentially driven yeah. by the cost, et cetera. Okay, but, I mean, that's when, fair. When, when the, when yeah, the yeah. space did zero, we did four a year. Yeah. Right. And so and so, if you want to maintain an allocation to, to this space, earning four versus zero is a really, really big difference. But this is interesting because I've heard you say that before, and I remember back then saying, well, I have to ask Andrew about this because when you say – when the space is flat, you do fall. But all I'm just, but I'm thinking here. Well, if the space is flat, there's no performance fee, right? So there can't be that much. You know, there might, there's going to be a management fee, right? There's going to be some commissions. But I will share one fact with you, and that is, you know, at least the longer term trend follows. It's not like we're paying masses of mounting commissions either. Frankly, yeah. we're not the most interesting <laughs> client of the prime broker either, right? <laughs> so, um, so, so. So I'm I'm a little bit skeptical about how much there could be in a flat period, um, how much outperformance there could be, other than whatever difference you're going to have in management fees, et cetera, et cetera, because there shouldn't be any performance fee, frankly, unless you have one guy doing really well or a few guys doing really well and others doing poorly. So they will obviously collect management uh, performance fees. The other ones won't. But if you are, I mean, and maybe it's different for the CTA index because there are different types of strategies in there. But for trend index, it's kind of unusual to see a couple of managers doing really well and everyone else doing flat. I mean, then they're not yeah, doing trend following. I mean, people you know people I mean. are pretty pretty highly correlated. So, so again, when we, we, we do trend and non-trend guys, right? So so that's, I mean, part, part of the ethos is, it was a bit of a historical accident, right? In 2015, there was, um, when you said managed futures, you said SockGen CTA index, right? Now the kind of, and, and by the way, right, people hated trend at that point, right? It was, it was trend is, I mean, it was, maybe not 2015, but it was, it was subsequent years. It was kind of trend is dead, trend is commoditized. And so the cool stuff is machine learning and counter trend and whatever, whatever. Um, uh, but so we we started with just the broad index again because we're we're just thinking what's the benchmark people are most likely to use? You know, you go ask a pension plan how did managed futures funds do last year? They'll cite the SockGen CTA index. You're right about the trend, right? They're more they're more highly correlated. But back to your point, sometimes they could be highly correlated and still do, and you have they do really badly, and you have no idea why. And so, um, yeah, so so 
I, you know, I think one of the things um, that, uh, I, so I guess, I mean, the way that I talk about it is the industry is definitely going to go through a lower return period at some point. I just don't, I just think that was such a strange period. And I don't, I don't have math to back it up. I just, I just, I just have, you know, I, I just remember at that time just, and looking back at it, how terrified central banks were of deflation and, and that the hair trigger response, and people talk about it in abstract terms about the Fed put, but it, it, it really, there was this kind of view, I think, you know, a very, very, a, a collective view that if they let that go too far, their tools would be useless. And I think, I just think, I think everybody lived in fear of becoming Japan. And so, so the Fed put, when people talk about it in kind of simple terms, like the equity markets are going down, I didn't really see it as that. I just saw it as, as they were terrified of a slowdown. And so every time when I looked at the space and I saw how we were doing and I saw other people were doing, it was two steps forward here, one and a half steps back over there. We're starting to make money here. It, it, we reverse on it. We start making, it just, it was, it was so difficult. Um, and, and look, I'm, I'm very optimistic um, that, that, that that's just not going to recur because I think the Fed has realized that that's a time bomb. No, no, I completely yeah. agree with you on yeah. that, and I think it, it plays into at least my own thesis about the end of, of globalization and 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 this uh, carrier scheme. Yeah. So, again, being incredibly selfish, you, taking some of my own uh, questions before everyone else, um, <laughs> but I'm curious, well, what's the hardest part of what you do? Would you say? Um, well, initially, the hardest part of, part part of what we do is was was convincing people to like the space. Yeah, um, no, I mean yeah. mechanically, I know that um, part, but I think in terms of doing. The thing, so to speak, in order to replicate. Um... Well, we 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 spend a lot of time worrying that we're missing something. Um, so I was in London when Trust managed to kind of sort of blow up the the <laughs> the pound, and and um, I was on my way back, and and you know what do we do at that point? We don't have it in our models, right? And so so you know that sets off a research project, which we've done. You know, we're doing this all the time. Is to well, should we have the, have the pound? Has something changed? Um, uh, you know, have have we used twos, tens, and thirties in treasuries? We don't have JGBs. We don't have you know, we don't have gilts. We don't, don't have all worry these about things. JDBs. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, um, so you know, and and so, you know, I mean, I remember in I think it was September of. Well, September 2021, I think it was, where, where natural gas went up 34%. And, and and we didn't have natural gas, right? So we see the guys are doing much better than we're doing. And, and you know, so we sit and, you know, we we then, you know, sit and say, should we do, you know, we, we, should we have natural gas? That We spend a lot of time thinking about that. I mean, people at one point a year ago, people were saying, you know, well, Bitcoin is going to be 20% of everybody's portfolios. Shouldn't you get in front of it at Bitcoin? Why don't you have VIX futures? Why don't you have this? So, um but and and the way that we do it is part math, but it's part. If you call me up one day and and say, you know, boy, the trade of of the twenty twenties is is you know we're doing uh, Ethereum, you know we're we're trend following Ethereum, and and then it's it's you know it's 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 understanding how the how the business is changing, and I think I think what's you know again what's going to happen is I think the business is going to grow a lot from here, for reasons we can talk about. Like in, in in ways that people just find will look back and say, "Wow, that's a lot more than I expected." Because I think we're all anchored to what feels like a generally a big industry, and um, and and uh, in the context of that, though, it also I think it also means that these big trades are going to matter more. 
you know, that, that a, one of a bunch of guys may make a killing on carbon futures or something, but I don't think, you know, man AHL can dial up their book or would take the risk of dialing up their book in something where they could be, you know, the guys paraded in front of the LME as, as, you know, getting, getting caught on the wrong side of a trade at the wrong time, because the markets just seem really fragile right now. And so, so, but we'll see, look, that's the bet that we're making. Exactly. You know? No, no. Yeah, I yeah. think that that's completely, completely fair. All right. So let me be unfelt selfish now and, 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 and give you some uh, kind of fire round question that has come in. Uh, one question that came in is from Brian and Brian asks about um, the fact that you are an ETF, um, you pay uh, year-end capital gains, which in the US has lower tax rate than income and distribution. Um, and he says, I'm not an expert in taxation of these products. Maybe you could quickly explain the relevance of this compared to other products. And maybe that goes to one of your topics where you wrote why an ETF, not a mutual fund, I imagine. Sure. So, so look, there's no tax advantage to doing what we do in an ETF versus a mutual okay. fund. Um, okay. The, the the one way that we try to make so massive disclaimer that I'm not a tax expert right. and and but but directly trading futures contracts tends to be more tax efficient than than getting income from getting normal income distributions. Some mutual funds have trade all of their contracts in a way where it all comes back at the highest effective tax rate, ordinary income. Um, uh, we try to trade as many of the contracts as we can in a way to have a lower effective tax rate. If anybody has questions on this, what I would suggest is you reach out to me over LinkedIn or social media, and I will put you in contact with the guys who can answer it. Brian, I will put you in contact with the guys who can answer it in, in greater detail and and more intelligently than I that's can. That's fair. No, no, I, that's absolutely fine. Um, then there's another question coming in here in terms of what what does the invest? I mean, obviously for people who don't follow it, and I'm, uh, I, I I would be surprised if 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 not most people have have seen the incredibly success that you've had, uh, and congratulations on on this. But but now that you're at a billion dollars, what does the what does the investor base uh, look like, and how much concentration do you have in terms of largest investors in a, in a product like yours at this stage? So we have, we have an army of small RIAs that bought into this product. Um, so the incredible about going from we've gone from sixty billion to sixty million to we're closing in on one point one billion um, as of yesterday. Um, uh, we are not on Morgan Stanley, uh, Merrill Lynch, UBS. Uh, no institutional consultants have approved us. We are not in any. Vanguard models, iShares models. Um, it has been entirely, it has been an army of independent entrepreneurial REAs who love the space and either have portfolios that only invest in ETFs, so they can't select from from it, or they want to make it part of a big asset, alloc- their asset allocation models and be able, they, they want index-like, right? It's, 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 for them, boring is good, right? They want to build the model, fill a bucket, and not talk about it for the next five years unless it's doing well. And so, so it's been, I mean, incredible opportunity for me to get to know these guys because and, and and understand how how they think, and that's sort of how I've tried to talk them through not as much the 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 
the bells and whistles right. or not bells and whistles of what we do, but rather like like the impact on a portfolio, how to talk about it with clients, how to go, how to weather those low return periods, how to weather the period where, you know, our skis are pointing in the same direction as, as equities. And, you know, and there's a flurry of criticism because, you know, weren't you supposed to go up when equities went down on Wednesday? Um, and so, um, so, so they've, they've been our, they've been our adopters and, and there's no concentration risk. What I think is going to happen now is that now that we're big enough, you start to see, actually, we're, we actually have a very, very narrow segment of the market we've been focusing on. We start to expand, I hope. You know? Yeah. And so getting to know all of these people, that's been your sort of main, so that's been the groundwork you've been doing in order to get that adoption. That's is, all. That's yeah. that, exactly. That's all I do. I mean, I spend, I spend my days on the phone with these guys and basically, um, you know, I'm not selling them. I'm, I'm, I'm telling them, this is how we came at the space. This is why we love the space. This is why we built it this way. If it works for you, if you love the American beacon product with main HL, they're great, right? If you're, if you're investing with you guys, you guys are great. You are destroying it this year. So, so, you know, so, all so, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. No. So in the ET ETF space, as far as I could quickly sort of work out myself, there's like four or five, um, ETFs really, uh, some of them, and I'm, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think wisdom tree and maybe even KFA, the Mount Lucas one uh-huh. has been around for quite a while, actually. Um, but today you've got like 55% of or more of the whole, uh, you know, ETF and managed future space. So why, what do you think, because I'm sure they would have talked to advisors as well. What do you think have caught the advisors kind of, uh, attention in, in, in what you do compared to what they do? And I actually don't know what they do, but I do mm-hmm. know that they're managed yeah. futures type so- products. So Wisdom Tree's been around for a long time. They launched it in 2010. And and I mean, my apologies for saying this to Wisdom Tree is an awful product, right? It, 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 I mean, it's actually, I mean, you look at it, it's actually almost managed to lose money. It's down this year. I mean, it's just, it is. But what it actually did was it, it, it they were tracking. So in ETF land, people want an index, right? They want, because the index is, why do people love the S&P 500 index products? They're not just cheap. They're never wrong. Right. And, and if you build a model portfolio and you have an allocation that goes wrong on you, you get fired, you lose your job. It's, it tortures you for, for, for long periods of time. Um, but, um, but the wisdom tree product was basically, uh, so there've been various products that have been said, you know, what we're tracking an index, but it's a different index. It's like, if you and I built a trend following index tomorrow, back to your point, it could be wildly different. Like look at the, the, the sock gen trend indicator, versus their their trend sub index um and um and then you know first trust has had a product out there kmlm or, or kfa who seems to have a, a a great firm they entered the actually the etf market last year and and they have but they have an index that's been around forever and so what they're doing from a marketing perspective is saying look at the index which is basically our live out of sample performance, but we're calling it an index because we have simple rules. So you can, you can look at our hypothetical numbers for a long period of time and they've had a great year. So, so they're, you know, they're up in 300 or something, but, but their index. So just for me to understand the difference, maybe for someone like that. So their index, is that also a trend following index? Because it can't be an index of, of many managers. If, if no, no, it's a trend following right. index. It's basically okay. their, so their, their, their own index model. Is, yeah, uh, it's, it's their own model. model. Okay, it's their own okay. model in 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 Microsoft Word okay. with Greek letters. Okay, okay, um, okay. And so so it's no different. And 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 the advan- the reason people do that it's like in smart beta, you know, people say, 
people say, oh, here's my, you know, selection methodology. And if I've been doing it for the past 30 years, this is how, how I've been doing it. What I understand from them is they actually have been doing it for 30 years. So it's real. And by the way, I want them to succeed, right? I want them to, I think that they are, their, their, their mandate is a little bit different, but I want everybody in this space, you know, so we're one to two basis points of the ETF world. You add in everybody else and we're two to three basis points of the ETF world. Should we be a hundred basis points? Should we be 500 basis points of the ETF world? I mean, this is a strategy that's hits the, hit the trifecta of dot-com GFC and now the unwind of the bubble maximus. And, and so every asset allocated, every model should have it. Um, but um, uh, so, so they have, they have, so they're a, a single manager product wrapped as an index, but that has a closer correlation to the index than maybe the guy who's doing carbon futures. Um, there's another fund out there called C CTA that Simplify launched has a supplement. Oh yeah, Mike Green's. Called, uh, yeah, yeah, true. But that's Altis. a specific. Exactly, that's a specific manager doing the strategy, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. and yeah, okay. and so um, so there really there really hasn't been something that that I think you could reliably say is index like, and that's why that's that's just my drumbeat is is we're less exciting, but but we're very unlikely to have a hangover. And, yeah, no, I mean, and and uh, and so boring, simple, and boring for cer for a certain segment of the community is very good, and and those are my guys. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I mean uh, that's great, and uh, so I just want to uh, just want to acknowledge um, someone uh, called Jerry, not uh, the Jerry you and I know, but another Jerry called in, uh, not called in, wrote in, uh, saying exactly that about the fact that it's uh, I think it says now, in he, at least he must have read your perspectives because he says that that there is now a sentence saying the fund will. Not invest in cryptocurrencies and digital yeah. assets. Yeah. So, so, so good on you, Jerry, for reading all of that stuff. Um, um, but, but maybe just for my benefit, is that just liquidity driven that you don't want to touch it, or is there other reasons why you don't want to touch it? Honestly, it was a a a, a very 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 important allocator. Uh, as it, like, I don't think we're going to be trading cryptocurrencies. In in, I mean. If five years from now, cryptocurrencies have kind of cleaned up their act and, and everybody's trading it, um, if we had to, we would go back and presumably go back and change the prospectus because everyone will be doing it and it, it will be institutionalized. <laughs> we had a, a very, very significant allocator basically say, we don't want ambiguity around this. And 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 since it's, I don't think it's something uh, that would impact us, we obviously um, are completely open and transparent about it. Um, but uh, maybe you have a different view. Maybe you think crypto is is, is around the corner. I think it's going to go through its a, a, a particularly dark winter. No, I mean we don't trade crypto on our side either. Uh, but of course, I know some of our uh, good colleagues uh, do. Um, people have different opinion about it. I guess you could say that if it is a liquid uh, futures-based market um, that uh, exhibits um, you know different characteristics. You could argue that okay, then maybe it should be up for um, you know it should be on the radar of of CTAs. But then I think it becomes more of a question of whether you truly believe in the liquidity of it, and also whether you whether it's just something you want to. I think there's also a little bit of a kind of um, personal preference type yeah. of thing. Do I want to be in this or or not? And and some managers, it's a little bit. I see the same with China. Some people adopting China as a space, and and for example, at our firm, we're not adopting it as a, as a place we want to be. So, yeah, I mean, perfectly I, fine. This I mean, is I what makes us different. Yeah, I mean, I would I would be surprised if 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 a large established managed futures fund bet the farm on it. 
Oh yeah, sure. I, sure. I can I can see them dabbling on yeah, it yeah. in it is and and trying to understand the market. It's you know I mean Soros used to say ready aim fire. Uh, uh sorry, uh, ready fire aim. aim he would say yeah. ready fire aim and basically you know get into a market and figure it out. Um, uh, it, it it the for big established managed futures funds to do to meaningfully trade in these markets. I mean, look, it sounds like it should be a trend following dream, right? It's a it is literally a yeah. a greater full magnet. Right. It is a an emotional. It is it plays off people's emotions. It should it should be phenomenal in that way. But I think I think it, I think it is in, in its infancy. And I think when you've seen people really get excited about the space, they want to own the infrastructure because they think this is, you know, a decade of egregious spreads, information asymmetries. And like they're, they're not they're not doing it because they think they're going to you know, capture the next 20 percent move in, in Bitcoin. They're doing it because they can, you know, they can squeeze money out of retail traders. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I actually, you know, I think that there are definitely managers, um, you know, as you say, dabbling with it. And, and of course, some of the of my good co-hosts on on the podcast definitely are, are involved in it and talked about it and I think have had some I mean success is very hard to measure right because it's about okay so what kind of profitability are you going to get over the next 10 years it's not about the next year who knows what one single market or even a sector is going to do I mean currencies were you know dead as a dog for 10 15 years and then suddenly it comes alive this year so I mean these things goes in, goes in cycle all right okay let's see what else we have um there's another question could be from the same guy Jerry who writes in about how is the price of the ETF made up during the day how does that work because people yeah, so, can trade it intraday I guess yeah so so there are well, ETFs always have two prices right there's NAV and at every moment of the day we know what our NAV is you know if we're making money on these contracts our NAV is going up I mean any risk management tool has that but you can't buy the NAV you buy the market price and, and the way ETFs work is that there is, you know, yes, unlike a mutual fund where you can buy at the end of the day, you can buy it at, you know, 1117 if you want. But, um, uh, but it, it requires a little bit of, um, at least a little bit of more art and knowledge and that you're buying a um, people, you know, when, 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 when somebody's buying Tesla stock, you know, they don't really, they want to trade close to the market, but they don't really think about the NAV of Tesla is this and, I didn't execute it very well, and I paid 50 basis points more than the NAV of, of, of Tesla, and therefore that's a horrible outcome, right? But but in in ETF land, people are very focused on trading close to NAV, which is reasonable because the the the, the analog there is I know at 4 p.m. I can invest in that mutual fund exactly at NAV, um, and so in the early years, it was very very hard for us um, because we had a small ETF and I talked to an advisor who'd want to put $5 million into it. There wasn't $5 million of trading activity. Uh, you know, fortunately now as you grow, what happens with ETFs is you just get a lot more trading volume, a lot more activity. And that kind of, that issue kind of goes, goes to the side. So when I think of the ETF and I think about it from a returns perspective, um, uh, I just think in in price terms, um, people who look at it sometimes want to also view NAV, performance over time but but to me the experience of an investor is i bought it at 1117 here and then i sold it three years later at the following price that's how much money i made cool all right then there's some uh, a few questions from mike uh who writes in and um and and some of the questions are probably also sourced from other people but it's, it's quite a long list but i think some of it we've already covered um there's a question about uh, whether you trade on u.s exchanges but i think 
I guess you we do. do all, we yeah, do. You do yep. all, all, all on it's US It's a New York exchanges. Stock Exchange listed ETF and okay. you can pretty much buy it. Yeah, everywhere. yeah, but all the markets you trade also US exchanges more or less, I would imagine. Yeah, it's all all yeah. US, US yeah. Uh, exchange traded yeah. futures contracts. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, we talked about how you select the markets. We talked about what happens if there is a big commodity market trend. Um, so we talked about the pros and cons in terms of that. Okay, here's a, here's a question uh, that might be interesting. Will capacity become an issue at a certain level of AUM, just like it does for traditional CTA strategies, do you think? So we don't think so in any in any foreseeable future. So we're a billion, let's say this space is 400 billion and very quickly maybe getting very close to 500 billion um, after this year. Um, uh, we're trading the mostly the most deepest, most liquid contracts that everybody else trades. Um, and we don't trade it that often. So we don't. So you see, trade once a week. You said you adjust your position, and yeah. I forgot to ask you before. Andrew, sorry to interrupt you. Um, when you do the and and I, because I think this is public, so I don't want to ask any secrets, of course. But how much, how far back do you need to look at the performance of the index in order to get your linear regression or whatever you're doing to kind of line up? Yeah. So so I mean, the principal window that we're looking at is about twenty trading days, right? And it's 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 short, right? And and the reason the reason we do it once a week, we could do it every day, we could do it three times a day. We it doesn't it it um uh, it, it's just again it's just a decision in terms of when you look at the the, the quality of the information that we get on Monday when we rebalance, it, it doesn't deteriorate that much over the next week. If we if we were to wait three weeks to rebalance again, you'd by weeks two and three it starts to get a bit iffy. Um, uh, so it's really just an efficiency. It's an efficiency protect. Obviously, if we get a lot of inflows on Tuesday. We're going to add positions incrementally to rebalance, but but in terms of the you know trying to the next guess as to where people are. Um, so so we're trying to look at, at very very recent history. We do look at somewhat longer window lengths in 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 conjunction with it, primarily because we don't want to be fooled by market correlations in just the past twenty days. You know if if two things look like A and minus A. In and or A and A and B look exactly alike in the past twenty days, but they look nothing alike in the previous twenty days. Our models really want to know that, <laughs> so as I'm sure as I'm sure you guys do, and so um, but uh, but basically we're trying to look at it as, as the shortest window length we can look at where we can get enough information. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so next question was about the volume, which you talked about. It's 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 obviously improved significantly, um, and so uh, if there are big inflows or outflows of your CTA, uh, your product intraday, that, that's obviously, how, do, how often do you take that into account? I guess as soon as the trade, if someone came in and said, I want to buy a hundred million of that mm-hmm. today, do mm-hmm. you have to adjust your position sizes straight away or how, how, how do you react to that? So, so the money doesn't come into the fund. Right? That's the difference with an ETF. What happens is you've got these market makers. ETF world has its own the plumbing of the ETF world is completely different. So you have market makers. And so you come in and say, you know, we want to buy $100 million of it. There's a market maker who will take the other side, right? So they will actually, and there there are, or there are these guys called authorized participants who can actually, and, and what they'll do is they'll basically go short by selling $100 million. And there's a negotiation as to how close you are. Going back to the NAB question, you know, you want them, like we have family offices who will come in and out with $5 million at a time. And we always make sure we always intervene a little bit to make sure they're, they're executing close to NAV because we want them to be happy. Um, 
So then what they would do is basically short, and then they would hedge themselves with the underlying contracts because they can see exactly what our positions are. So then they have a flat book. And then at 2 o'clock every day, uh, 2.05 every day, these guys will tell us, all right, we're converting that short position into an actual investment. That's where mm -hmm. we see the inflows. Ah, okay. Right. And so, so once a day, uh, you have to adjust your so, positions. So once a day, we see the inflows. It okay. doesn't hit until midnight. We rebalance. We we add or or, or the following morning. So it, it's really no different. Mechanically for us, it's no different than a mutual fund. No. Okay. Fair enough. Um, all right. Here's a, a good one. Um, recently, I've seen Andrew quoted as saying CTAs were once an optimal allocation for any diversified portfolio, but now CTAs are an essential allocation for a diversified portfolio. I could not agree more. How has this message been received by the financial professionals Andrew communicate with? Well, I've, I've, so that's it's it's a new tagline that I'm using. So managed futures from optional to essential, um, and 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 my argument my argument is a couplefold. One is so you're an allocator at the end of in the beginning of 2023, right? And in in the beginning of 2021, you had a 60 40 portfolio, right? It really didn't work this year. Right. So, so, you know, this is something Dan Loeb said about this regime change. It's like, we need a new playbook. The world has changed, as you say. And so they're going to then go look for how do I diversify what I have? And okay, well, do I do REITs? Well, REITs are down a lot this year. Do I do, you know, I mean, it used to be private equity and venture capital. We're going to start seeing markdowns on that. So, so, so what, what literally, what do you have out there that adds more diversification bang for the buck? For any dollar that you take out of your beloved 60-40 portfolio. And I'm sorry, it's managed futures, right? right? Like, like, I mean, that's what I mean about like it, it, two years ago, talking to people about it, I would say, you know, look at look at dot com, look at GFC. And they're like, yeah, what have you done for me lately? You know, it, that's ancient history. The world's changed. It's commoditized. There's too much cash. There's like a million arguments, uh, reasons not to do it. So I think I think every allocator is basically going to be confronted with the question of why don't I have managed futures? Pretty soon, it, it doesn't happen immediately. It'll happen over over the course of several years. You'll see certain people adopt it. They'll they'll highlight it because it's now the coolest thing in their portfolio. The, the other ninety five percent looks like everybody else. And um, but but when you get this kind of um, uh, uh, amplification effect, so the other thing is that and and this is really important on the wealth management side is there are a lot of great products out there, right? So if you're a wealth manager who invest in mutual funds, you've multi-billion dollar products. You've got 25 great products you can pick from with, 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 with sophisticated guys, and you can decide how you want to put that together in your portfolio. The last time we went through this in 2008, there weren't, right? You had Equinox and low-core products that were, oh, we're 95 basis points, but ignore the 300 basis points we're paying to the guys underneath in this swap contract with Deutsche Bank. I mean, it was, you know, it was, does Morningstar, you know, said this is the worst practice in mutual funds. Big platforms wouldn't approve them. There wasn't there wasn't a viable option. And so what we believe is between us on the ETF side and the mutual funds on the other is you're going to see, you know, we're one point, ETFs are 1.7 billion, two to three basis points of the overall space. The mutual fund side is 25 billion. Right? Why isn't the mutual fund side 100 billion, 200 billion, 300 billion? So what I am trying to do, and I hope people will look back on this, is I am trying to find a way to get more people into the tent. I, I am much more interested in seeing the pies expand two, three, four, five, tenfold, and then 
And 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 I think that's the message I've been delivering to some of my peers in the ETF space is is we we've got it. We should get this to a reasonable allocation, which means let's get our messaging together. And I think what I'm trying to do, based upon my experience with these guys, is is a lot of the language around managed futures is 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 imposing. It's intimidating. You know, I mean, talking about trends and why they work, what I hope to do is kind of wrap it more in stories. Like I did this LinkedIn post about the yen. I mean, the yen to me is an incredible example of how hard it was for a human being to get that right. Um, and 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 this is where the machines win. And so anyway, so that's 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 why I think I think they become I think they become essential. And 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 I think it's going to be great for the whole space. Yeah, I saw another um, and maybe they misquote you or maybe you also said it like that. There was another one where another variation of your new tagline where you said um, something like um, something with 2023. And then you said, um, you know, CTAs will be essential for the next two years or something like that. Do you, is that right? You've said I that? don't. I don't think okay. I've ever said Because, it. In, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The only reason why I, I I noticed it where I said, well, hang on, I need to tell Andrew. It's not just for the next two years. It's <laughs> no, essential. No, no. But, but you change, your tagline now is is perfect. Now, no, the, my, the, my, the, my my other one is Manitutors goes mainstream. That's the other one. Okay. That's yeah. the other one. Well, there we can, are. can I can I add one thing to that? Because I think you it's can, interesting. So, well, so the course. criticism of of this thesis is investors are hot handed. You know, the equity markets are going to come soaring back 20%. Uh, you know, they're going to dump managed futures because managed futures are getting whipsawed or not on the wrong side of it. There's a reason I focus on the model, guys. Like, I, I this should be a strategic allocation in a portfolio for the next five or 10 years. And, and you know, like, when you have guys who build model portfolios, they're thinking 10-year horizons. 20-year horizons. What's the right mix today? And then what are the right tools to get there? And I don't think that happens this time. I don't think, I think, I think because the, the, in 2008 or nine or 10, there was still much more of a fund selection gunslinger mentality in the retail world. I'm going to find the best guy. Look at this guy. He's up 20%. I'm going to add him to my portfolio. It was, it was much more since then the world has become dominated by model portfolios and, and model portfolios mean a collection of asset classes, capital markets assumptions for the next 2020, next 10 or 20 years. How do I maximize my efficient frontier? How do I improve my risk adjusted returns? And how do I deliver that integrated message to clients as opposed to having them focusing on the line items? And so I think, I think the money is sticky this time. There will be plenty of, there will be plenty of hot money, but I think it's, it's, it's uh, particularly after this year, it's going to be obvious. There's, there's one thing that, <clears throat> I will say that. I mean, I hope I hope you're right, but but I also um, am a little bit um, cautious when 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 hoping that you're right because <laughs> well it, because it's 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 it is interesting to me having watched uh, this space for a long time. I think that 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 there is definitely something about capacity and. There are, you know, you you mentioned people like AQR going to 14 billion in a trend following strategy. We've seen other managers go to many many billions in in a strategy, and suddenly return starts to come off, and so on and so forth. And maybe they would say, well, it's not to do nothing to do with our capacity, blah blah blah. I think it's hard to argue that there isn't an impact. And you could say that if you were right, and the industry grew, say it doubled. Does it mean that these managers could actually double in 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 AUM 
and the returns will be the same. I question that. I would question that. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not going to try because, frankly, of course, the management fee income alone is very interesting. And, and that's obviously, I come from a firm where we only make we only make money when our clients make money. We're performance fee only. So we're kind of in the opposite camp here. Um, so we are very attuned to this thing about capacity. We're very cautious about it. But of course, people with different business models may, may, may see it differently. Um, so, 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 so are you not, are you not concerned a little bit? I mean, if this really, I mean, just look at your success, how quickly it's gone. And, and let's just say, as you rightly put, when people start to looking at their allocations for 2023 and they see, well, hang on, the only thing that worked was trend following and managed futures. We need some of that. What I also hear from my friends in the industry is that, there are a few big pension funds uh, that have allocated to trend following in the recent in recent years, and they've done really well. So their share of the AUM with some of these firms have become so big that that the firms have started to give the money back again. So th- that to me is also a, a sign of hang on, maybe we are hating capacity with some of these firms that are in the indices that you also look at. So as much as I hope for the success and I have cheered for it for the last 30 plus years of this strategy, and I do believe it needs to be in every single portfolio, I also feel that cannot happen. <laughs> I mean, we just don't have enough capacity for that to happen. So h- how do you, and, and maybe we can transition into kind of where you see this is going and, and all of that. So how do we marry our both of our optimism about um, the adoption of this strategy, uh, but with maybe a little bit of a concern in terms of how big it can be. So, so capacity is always an issue, right? And and for and, and capacity is just not something that. And, and and back to your point about like at what capacity do 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 returns get diminished? Um, I, I don't know how to do that analysis. Right. Right. I don't it's, think many I mean, people know, frankly. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, it's just. I mean, I've, I've been hearing about this for years. For risk parity, right? Risk parity was always the you know the deleveraging bugaboo that you know the markets are going down because the risk parity is deleveraging. You know, you see things about um, uh, you know people talk about you know oh you know CTAs are are flipping from one hundred percent short to one hundred percent long and and just like what are you talking about? I mean, it's it's so. Um, I mean, look at the private equity world, right? I mean, it just the idea that these these guys. I mean. It just all of the opportunities that made the private equity world incredible from a risk returns perspective at the right time um, went away with institutionalization. You can make that argument with hedge funds. So clearly, there's a capacity issue to any strategy. Um, I feel better about the capacity issue with this strategy, but because when I look at the instruments that we trade, that we trade, that I think are the big drivers, right? It may be, it may make it harder to trade those if you're. If man AHL is 50 billion and you know whatever incremental value they're getting from a lot of these positions is, is probably going to go away. But in terms of like the big positions, I mean, just if, if the space is up 35 this year, how many people would have said with a you know 400 400 billion dollar industry would have been making 130, 140 million dollars a year, billion dollars this year on uh in profits? You know, it just in a in a in a in a year where markets are kind of fragile and illiquid. Um so definitely long-term returns will come down. I don't think we're going to know the answer for 10 years. It's going to depend on how much money comes in. It's going to depend on what happens overall liquidity to markets. Um, uh, 
but you know, you know, from from our perspective, if returns come down marginally, but people, it's still valuable for people's portfolios. You don't have to have. I don't know. I mean, did you think we'd have this year <laughs> as as good as it is this year? I mean, it's um, you know. No, I, I mean, so 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 from my perspective, it's really not about a. Do you know a, a single year doesn't really mean uh, much to me. Uh, if I look at our returns, and we do this analysis where we divide our so we have a thirty-eight year track record in our flagship right now, wow. even though we've been around wow. for forty-eight years. So, Congratulations! You know, Dunn was started in nineteen seventy-four, so we really are one of the pioneers. But but when so but the most important thing is that when I look at um, our returns in kind of three different buckets, where I look at the full track record, I look at the period from when we started to make some improvements to the track record or to the model and then uh, we made some further improvements uh, a few years later but that's about 10 years ago now right so i have three different uh, periods uh, of return and you could argue that they're very different in terms of environment right the full track has many different environments and you could argue maybe the from 2006 until now and from 2013 until now have been in this little bit different type of environment but the good thing is what i see is that our returns are completely consistent. They're more or less within 1% on an average return. They're the same. So my point is, did I expect it to be this year that's going to be the outperformer? Not necessarily. But do I expect us to continue to find opportunities to deliver whatever we've delivered um and obviously i'm being careful not to talk about performance on the public okay. <laughs> podcast but but uh, if am i am i optimistic and, and confident that we'll continue to deliver what we've delivered now for almost 50 years absolutely and i'm even more convinced um with the with what, what you and i talked about earlier about how how the world is changing etc cetera, etc cetera. i actually think maybe we are going to have now a period of above average performance and you know because we had a period of a below average performance frankly so yeah uh, but year by year i think it's impossible to say even even month by month it's impossible to say um what kind I mean, of performance to expect well uh, and, and i meant it over sort of a i just mean i mean you just mean this business is so surprising i mean you mentioned the point about currencies and you know and people were asking for attribution from us last year and they were saying dump currencies you know do it all without currencies it's not helping you and and we said that's not how this game works uh, first of all it's not our decision it's it's these smart guys i mean i, I think like, i think everyone adapts over time right you have a a a very different business model than the asset gatherers right you and so if the business grows 3x in the next five years. You guys may say, you know what? We're not going to spend as much time on treasury futures. But but you know, look at what's happening with this market where we can still trade in a way. And in fact, and there'll be people who will come in and say, you know, like when I started a commodity business in 2001 um, and the flows started to come into the business, there were significant businesses trying to anticipate those capital flows and getting in front of it. So there, there is, you know, we are, that's what I mean about the dynamism of the industry. Um, and we don't know again, how all that really plays out. And I think that's where our mandate is, is different. If somebody said, you know, go run a maximize the dollars you can make running one of these firms, you know, it's like an equity long short guy is going to do better with $200 million than the same guy with, I started, well, when I started Balpo's at 600 million, 15 years later, they had $32 billion. I mean, you, you can't do the same stuff. Um, and so, so that may change the industry. I think what we've tried to do is basically, you know, again, say, I still think that these big trades 
In fact, if the industry grows, it's it's good for us in terms of the reliability of what we do. But then, you know, I think what we're supposed to be the beta, the S&P, you know, if we don't outperform through fees and we just match what everybody else is doing and you guys are all doing incredibly well over the next five years, that's a heroic outcome given the fact that it's in an ETF. But, you know, within that, people will make each of their own decisions in terms of where they think the best opportunity set is, how to capitalize on it. And, um, uh, and so I'm not terribly worried about in terms of what we do or the overall industry. It's more of just an observation of, I think, what's going to happen, and I'm going to try to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. No, no, and I also believe that, of course, I mean, I've heard the thing about capacity as a, as a, as a potential issue for the industry as a whole uh, for, for a very long time. I mean, when I started in, in, in the CTA space, I think we were between 5 and 10 billion, right? So it, it, it always came up. And then once the institutional adoption happened around year 2000, people were saying for the longest time, oh, but clearly it's getting too big now. But you're right. I'm not worried about it, but but I am, I'm, I'm aware of it. Final few questions, um, really. Um, by the way, I'm curious, I, do you have to register with the CFTC and NFA when you trade? Because you're not a CTA, oh, sure. or you are a CTA. Or you are, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, we, yeah oh. we're, we're, we're okay. registered with, with the CFTC okay. and the SEC. So someone, I, I'm sure you saw this on Twitter a little while ago, um, someone said, well, we can just replicate the replicator. I is, love that. that yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and charge 10 basis points, right? So, well, let's not hope that happens because I don't, we don't, we shouldn't drive for, for the lowest uh, number for sure. Um, there's one thing, there's one, this is one of my questions. So is there's one thing that I want to ask you actually here. And I don't know if you thought about this, but you know, a lot of people buy managed futures or CTAs uh, or trend followers because of the quote-unquote crisis alpha, which of course Katie Kaminsky coined. And and as I've said so many times on this podcast, I love the term initially. I've, I've come to learn that it's a little bit tricky because then you have to debate what is a crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But still, the concept, people, it's easy to understand, so it works. However, when you look at... So, okay, so people would buy your product they would buy maybe something from from or, or they would buy a manager and they are hoping maybe some people would expect to get some kind of positive return when the crisis hits like they did this year but we also know that that doesn't always happen because what not just we have found but what many managers have found is that when you go through an equity crisis what drives the returns are actually often commodities. It's the most consistent sector within that. So is that something you have thought about um, a way to overcome somehow that? Because I would imagine that so, many of your advisors um, are actually also including managed futures for that particular reason. Sure. So so the, the most annoying, and I, I mean, I tell people flat out, the most annoying thing about the strategy is when you're long equities. Right. So, right. so I, I went in, I was in January, 2018, I'm in London, I'm talking about this multi-strategy fund that we have that has a 40% allocation of managed futures. And, and the market had gone up every single day. S&P had gone up every single day um, in, in the back half of 2000. And, and then, then had this melt up and I'm standing in the middle of the melt up and guys are saying, you know, like, Oh, thank God you've got managed futures, you're hedged. I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> like, like, we, we don't have, we have both skis pointing completely in the same direction. And so, um, we've looked at taking out equity risk. We've looked at doing, it's just, it's always a bad idea. I mean, just, it's, it's, so, um, what I've tried to say to people, so, so the crisis alpha term, I think is a brilliant term, 
Like it's very catchy and very clean and very simple. Um, I talk about it in a little bit of a different way um, because I'm trying to set the right expectations. If you talk about crisis alpha, you assume that if there's a flash crash on, on, on Wednesday, you're going to go up. Um, and what I talk about, I talk about in two different ways. I say, one, this is a strategy built for regime shifts. And what makes 2000, 2008 and 2022, what, the, the common thread between them is the world changed and people fought it like hell because, and, and, and very smart people, but, and why did they fight it? They fought it because they benefited from the prior regime. They'd made bets, you know, so in, in early 2021, I was talking to RAs about, you know, Stan Drock and Miller wrote basically called inflation and, and I'm talking to advisors and they're like, well, you know, we don't believe, we, we don't believe it. And I'm like, guys, it's, that's investment suicide, right? You are like, don't, trade against Dan Druckenmiller if you want to be in business next year. And, but then, then we got a little bit more into it. And what I realized was that they had made bets in their own business. They had a huge S and P 500 bet, which was Fang stocks, which were dependent upon low interest rates. They had bonds that were earning 2%. They had private credit. They had all these different things. Everything in their portfolio had a low rates bet. And so what we've seen over the past 21 months is, is a fighting adjustment because because they can't go back to their clients and say, guys, new playbook, game's over. You know, I know you thought I was the sober steward of your capital. Um, um, sorry, I just read this interview with this guy named named Stan Druckenmiller, changing everything. It's value stocks. You know, we're dumping ARC, et cetera. And so um, so I, I've described it kind of in terms of like where where the emotional opportunities are is what we're seeing now. Who thought you you said that two years at two, four and a half percent? I mean, that is wild. I find a strategist in, in the beginning of 2021, let alone even the beginning of 2022, who, who got even near that right. And I think some people have put very good language about like the unexpected keeps happening, the impossible keeps happening. But the other way that I describe it to people to temper their expectations, and, and maybe this will prove to be wrong at, at some point, but I said, whether we make or lose money in the first month of a crisis is, is hit or miss. Depends on what happened in months minus one, minus two, minus three. Um, uh, but, but months two through six, two through 10, two through 12, that's when the strategies have had time to pivot. And at least what we saw in our portfolios, because, you know, 2020 was really damaging to the strategy because it was guys, you've been, you've been telling us this was the moment you've been waiting for. Right. And people have like their one ski pointing at equities and the other ski, thankfully, is pointing long bonds. But they're kind of tripping over themselves and trying to change their positions. They're kicking off their boots. They're putting their boots back on. But, and then and then the Fed comes in at the moment. Everybody is ready for this. On March 23rd, the Fed comes in and ruins the party. And so 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 that was that was really hard because that was supposed to be the shining moment. And that's when I sort of realized that I had to change talking about it. the crisis alpha implied that the strategy had failed. And, and I didn't think it had seeing, seeing what I had in the portfolio. It's it, and, and instead, so I had, so it was like, okay, look, let's just have very clear expectations. If the, if the market rallies come back tomorrow, there, there are two scenarios, a few scenarios where, where, where you're going to be unhappy with the strategy, right? If, if, if the fed comes in tomorrow and says, never mind, just kidding. And if Putin says, never mind, just kidding, we're going to lose money, but we're not positioned for that. So, a, a rapid shift in when you have like, like Omicron weekend, right? Omicron weekend was hell uh, for, because you had all these underlying bets. So we'll lose money then. Okay. But guess what? You're making money everywhere else. You're thrilled. 
point to the other 95% of your portfolio. The other one is, 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 is we, we repeatedly walk, drunkenly walk into propellers. But again, those are more a series of paper cuts. And, and that's why, you know, but, but what the strategy doesn't do is hold on with a white knuckle grip. It's not, Kathy Wood cannot buy value stocks, right? Chiz Coleman is not going to buy railroad companies, even if it's the right trade today. So the dispassionate nature of, oh, I loved being long oil at the right time. And then it's kind of starts bouncing around in awkward ways. Ah, never mind. Let's find something else. Like that, that is a huge, huge advantage. Um, and then, and then it's really when, and then as you get into a period like this, it's the unexpected. You know, it's it's the things that six months ago you say, what, the yen's at one fifty? Are you kidding me? Like, and, and how are we? St- how do we still have the electricity on? You know, how is how is the world not falling apart? And so. Um, so, but but I think you know what I'm trying to do is describe it in a way. I, I realize that the goal with these guys is is not to have them get to the end of a call, where they, I felt like they understood what I did. The goal is to have them be able to get off the call, turn to everything else, not talk about this for a month, but then have some memorable anecdotes, stories, examples a month from now when they're sitting down from a client or they get asked a question about it and they feel like they understand it now. And that, that's, that's my sort of mission over the next several years. Cause, cause that's me, right? Like, like, like I'm the guy who has to like, you know, I mean, I look at our portfolio and it, I understand why you guys are doing what you're doing. And I understand then, then, then why we have those positions because it's, it, it's not usually a surprise. It's not like, you know, oh, wait, we flipped a short yen, even though it continues to go down. We've never, I've never seen that. Um, so anyway, that's 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 it. So crisis alpha is very useful, but I think I think there's a, a better story around it. Yeah, no, uh, and and it's great to have uh, people like yourself uh, out there uh, talking about this. And it is actually quite interesting that every time there's a good spell of uh, of performance, uh, we have all these investment banks uh, so interested in front running our signals and talking about what we are doing. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast that I'm surprised because we're actually for the most part, clients of these investment banks, and you don't really want your positions being front-run by uh, by the people you do business with. Anyway, that's a different story. Um, I think we've covered most... I mean, we'll have to get you back later and 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 just continue this conversation. It's uh, uh, super exciting. Uh, maybe my final question to you would be something along the lines... Are you going to send a large Christmas basket to the 19 CTAs <laughs> that make it possible for you to replicate their performance each day? <laughs> well, I don't think they need a Christmas basket this year. Okay, I mean, we are, you know, we'll we'll cross that bridge when. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that's people have always talked about what we do in terms of like, you know, how worried are the big guys? If I was, a, I mean, who cares? Right. I mean, it's it's they they have as much money as they want. They've got pen, institutions are lining up around the block to give the money at five times the fees, 10 times the fees that 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 we earn. And they 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 bring something incredibly valuable to the table. Fund selection is not going away. Right. The the but I don't think man AHL wants an ETF where somebody can look at their positions every day. You know, and 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 there are trillions of dollars of capital who will never go to their door because they cannot. Um, and so we are incredibly grateful for these guys, and we root for them. We root for you. We root for them. We want you guys to destroy it, and and uh, and make your models better, and do that. And you know, if we can, 
you know, if, if we can if we can kind of come along for the ride and benefit for that, then then we'll bring real value to the millions of investors in the ETF world who 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 wouldn't otherwise have access to it. And I think that's 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 really my focus. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I've yeah. said that as as well uh, on on several occasions that even though I can have my own question marks, let's put it that way. Um, but I think what you guys do and what I is I think this is why it is so useful and and uh, is that it helps many more people get exposure to a strategy that we should all have exposure to. So so, so that that is really uh, important. Now, you just mentioned something now that makes me come up with one, uh, yet another question, and that is um, because I've spoken with, uh, with, with the Jerry you do know uh, about this, and, and, I, and I think he believes that it's harder to replicate a single... Well, there are two th- questions we've talked about. One is, is it ha- easier to uh, replicate a manager or a group of managers that are, uh, quote-unquote, dynamically adjusting their position, so vol targeting, compared to managers that just keep their position size constant and where, where they could have big outliers, so to speak, because the one market or two market just goes and they have a big size position on. And then also whether you can actually, whether, I mean, could you in theory, I, well, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but could you replicate a single manager as well, do you think? Are you that good at it now that you can say, well, give me whatever daily data from a manager and, and we can get there? Whether well, they a, trade, yeah. you know, who, who may trade, obviously, many more markets than, than, than you do. So um, let me answer the, the, the last one first. So w- okay. we would never try to replicate a single manager. No, no. But it's not just, also, I don't think it's right. Right? I mean, it's, I mean, if somebody comes in and does the DBMF one day later ETF, like okay, I mean it's cute, I get it, but you know it's. I, mean, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would hope I would hope the investor base would say I'm not going to do this. So the whole thesis is is big pools, right? And and within that, you're going to have guys who are easier to replicate and guys that are harder to replicate, and and it's it's really dependent upon if guys doing different well. It's 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 a it's very very much of a portfolio approach, and the bigger the better. Um, and um, you know, and again, it all comes back to. If if you know if the ETF if, if if everybody decided that the SOCGEN CTA index isn't the right index, we're going to use the Credit Suisse index, which is I think is essentially just their own model, which is designed to kind of look like it. Um, you know that would change how we would think about it a little bit because we really start with with the the outcome, the good outcome is three years from now I matched or outperformed my benchmark. And never went through a period of significant underperformance, you know. And for that, you want whatever the big. Right now, it happens to be so. Part part of what the reason that this is, I, some way people sort of say it's disruptive, is because you really haven't had a good way to invest broadly in the space, right? You can hire fund of funds, but they're expensive. And again, and these are this is where you get into non-economic considerations. It's a tough pill to swallow to buy a two hundred basis point fund in the U.S. mutual fund world, even if they're incredible, because Somebody is going to look at the expense ratio of your overall portfolio, and the, it shouldn't matter. But a five percent allocation with another adds another five basis point to your expense ratio. You will lose mandates on that in certain segments of, of the market. It's a non-economic consideration, but you know I think what we're known for in the replication space. So in fifth, we've been doing this for fifteen years. We've only done three products, right? We've rejected dozens. No, guys, we're not going to rep, try to replicate Bridgewater Pure Alpha. 
recently it's been, no, I know it's millennium. Yes. We're still not going to try to replicate millennium. Okay. What about medallion? If you can do medallion for me, I think I might well, invest. I would have a different, then I'd have a different business. <laughs> then, then, then I would be the single stop. I would be the single fun guy. <laughs> We'd call it medallion or something. Right. Um, but no, look, I mean, there are, you know, one of the things I'm known for in kind of the broad, and as I try to kind of study the industry is 19 out of 20 things that people have tried to do of taking hedge fund strategies and putting them into um, mutual funds, ETFs, usage funds have worked terribly. I mean, terribly. The, the entire space has done one and a half or 2% per annum over 10 years after 200 basis points in fees. It, and, and you were talking about incredibly well-known managers have entered the space. It's an embarrassment. Um, the one space, though, where you have a combination of inc- diversification, bang for the buck, products that can work in these vehicles, right? You, I mean, how? When did you launch the uh, the mutual fund in the U.S.? So we took it over in. Um, so we're just a sub advisor. So we took over in late fifteen for okay. that one. Yeah. All right. So, but. I mean, I assume you can do most of. You'll have hit leverage and some other constraints in terms of what you're doing, but but it's not going to be night and day. You're not a you know you're not a distressed debt investor who's then just buying liquid bonds like everybody else and charging a lot of money for it. And um, and so so there are so there's a history and a long history of products and and it's a strategy that works in it. And, it, it, and it's 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 always in these big industry shifts. It's always a combination of factors that converge in a way. And and then it's also on the allocator side, these guys have their own competitive pressures. You know, the most sophisticated allocators out there that I talk to are guys like Corey Hofstein, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, Med Faber and and Wes Gray. And these guys are all over Fintwit and uh, Resolve, right? I mean, the Resolve guys are great. And they, they they've all been huge buyers and believers in this as part of an asset allocation model. But they're also the dis- disruptors, right? They're saying the Vanguard 60-40 model portfolio for free worked great, but it's a single bet. It was a single bet for 10 years that worked. And they're going to try to take share from all these guys who are down 20% in their diversified portfolios this year because they're flat or they're up. or they're And, and so it's those competitive dynamics um, that you know that causes people to then kind of change what they do and adapt. And it is interesting. I mean, all, all the names you mentioned there—they're all great guys. Some of them have been on the podcast, and and so on and so forth. But, but all I want to say is that 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 message obviously is not new. I mean, it's pretty much the same message we've been going out with for thirty years. So it it is interesting that it's. I mean, it always gets more attraction after a bear market in equities, for sure. We had big inflows in two thousand nine, following 08, et cetera, et cetera, and after. Uh, the tech bubble. We also saw big inflows, and the whole institutional adoption started around to, uh, year two thousand in this in the CTA space. Um, so, so without a doubt, um, and and maybe these new uh, ways of having people who are real influencers on 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 social media, uh, maybe that's touching also another audience. Um, uh, well, for I think, sure, I think, the, I think the buyer base has changed. Yeah, right. So, so I think that's, and I think that's the, I, the this this development of model portfolios. It's happened gradually but constantly and i'm talking more about the wealth management space right so look do i think um uh you know a a a hedge fund group at a consulting firm is going to buy us no but we're we're not fun right maybe maybe they'll have a 25 million dollar client over here that they'll use they'll use it they're going to pick four of you guys 
They're going to write long research reports. They're going to talk to you every month about it. It's what they do. It's what they like to do. It's good for them and their business. That's what their clients want to see them do. Um, uh, the I think we can solve the problem for them when they've got lots of small clients that, you know, if, if they have a bunch of small clients, I think we, we're, we're probably a better answer for them. But again, they don't invest in ETFs. Right. I mean, ETF is a weird animal for them. And, it, and, and ethos wise, it's like it sounds passive and it's very scary. Um, but um, but I think but but this growth of model portfolios really happened after the, the GFC. And what what in what what wealth management firms found was it's always the one lunatic who 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 throws off the business. And so you'd hear guys, at, you know, at, at these huge wealth management firms saying, like, wait, we've got a guy in. In you know in in Iowa, who put all of his clients into three stocks, and they're down eighty percent, and we're getting sued by everybody. And so, what it caused in the wealth management space was to say, "Look, we don't want our our wealth managers focused on picking stocks. Don't don't do that. We're going to centralize it. We're going to create model portfolios run by teams of people who know how to do this in New York. Your job is to go and pick the guy and, and talk to the guy, figure out his risk profile." And basically convince them that our Navy SEAL Team Six of asset allocators here is going to pick, build the right model for him, build the right, and put him in, in in the right products. But that was a control thing, and it was designed to make the manager more efficient. We want him acquiring new clients. We want him uh, to be servicing those clients, cross selling. You know, maybe we get him to buy a mortgage, do all this stuff that 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 from management's perspective, made it less risky and more effective, fewer regulatory compliance issues. Um, so now when you walk in, they say, they, they do this financial planning exercise and they put you in a model portfolio. And what they want you to do is focus on the model, right? And that worked great during the 2010s because the model always worked. And, and that's where they could come in and say, if, if you want to be different from Vanguard, well, here we've got private credit. Vanguard doesn't have private credit. I mean, it, it, it just take a step back. Vanguard is the most peculiar business that I've seen in a long time of doing this. It's a nonprofit, right? Imagine if Man AHL decided tomorrow that they were going to be a nonprofit. And every time you invested with them and they made, they would just reduce everybody else's fees until they basically went down to zero. It, it is. It is such a, a, a. It creates such competitive distortions across the business. So everybody is is trying to figure out how do we justify ourselves relative to Vanguard, and Vanguard is the is is the standard bearer of simple and dirt cheap. So they've got to add things in to to differentiate from Vanguard. More sophisticated products. Sometimes they get paid more on those products in there. But but basically everyone's trying to build these more and more complicated model portfolios to match what institutions have. Because institutions didn't used to have 40 different asset classes and 500, you know, 300 underlying underlying investments. It's it's kind of a race, it's, it's kind of a battle toward complexity. The problem is a lot of the moves toward complexity hurt people. And and so, you know, with, with DBMF, there was almost a sigh of relief when I would talk to people. Because because if you're if you're looking at the mutual fund space and say I've got to pick one of these guys, I want to pick it. I want to be in the space, but I've got to pick one of these guys. The second or third time you've you've had a guy who hits the windshield, and again, I'm not saying he'd like they're down eighty percent because that's not the way the strategy works. But but if you're sitting with a benchmark that's that's flattish, as you say, and your guy is down ten or twenty over some short period of time, it, it your diversification plays against you and your business. And so 
I just I think this is such a profound. It's why ETF low cost ETFs have taken off. Why index products have taken off. It's all tied into getting people to think more holistically. And and now you've got guys like Brian Portnoy who talk about you know the behavioral side of it, and and conditioning people. So I think that is very very different than it was post GFC. And and so a lot of how we've positioned our business and how we think it changes from here is driven by that. And on the pension plan side, ha- have fun. <laughs> I think they're going to be they're going to be well, knocking your door down <laughs> to give you money, and and they're going to pick you and three other guys, and you will have as much money as you want in your products on whatever terms. And you'll probably and everyone's going to probably raise fees because you know, like what DE Shaw and everybody else has done. Oh yeah, I mean, I yeah. think uh, you know, hats off to 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 uh, people like DE Shaw who just. Uh, since you know i don't know what it was 50 percent of their money back plus raising their fees uh, dramatically and 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 you know and this is actually one thing that could be interesting and now we're really speculating here andrew and that is maybe there does come a point where ctas um say well hang on we are close to our capacity why should we continue to sort of bend over for lower fees in fact we think it's so valuable what we offer uh, that we're going to increase our fees. Now, I know this is, again, a little bit of a stretch. People probably wouldn't think about that, but it's like it's like talking about inflation two years ago, right? But who knows? Um, and, and hats off to those who, 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 who would do that and say, well, actually, um, why would I want to give this valuable product away for free? Well, I think I mean at some point I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it because when we looked at when we looked at the um, I wrote a paper on on the bank uh, trend products and and they were supposedly cheap, but they weren't as good, right? So when we when we looked at actual hedge funds versus the trend products, to us it seemed like, okay, yes, you pay a lot more for those for for the hedge funds, but you end up on a net of fee basis roughly where these guys were coming in. So the implication was they're not as good on a pre fee basis. There's not as much excess returns, there's not as much alpha, however you define it, but they're charging you less for it. Sometimes going down the low fee route can be a pyrrhic victory because because really when so so the way I've always viewed fee reduction in hedge funds and I have this kind of pithy expression that in hedge funds fee reduction is often the purest form of alpha and and but what I you know if somebody dropped me into a sovereign wealth fund and said here's 25 billion dollars to go invest in hedge funds I would you know, I would take that money and I would try to get the best deals that I could with credible firms. And I'd be making choices. You know, am I getting, uh, yes, this guy's a GSA, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I get GSA for 50 basis points, but do I really think they're better, they're worth it relative to ManHL or whomever else? And, um, but it's, it's, it's a hugely powerful thing. The buyer base in hedge funds is incredibly fragmented. In other words, a consulting firm approves XYZ manager without writing a dollar for them. A sovereign wealth fund approves a manager and gives them $2 billion on that day. So it's, it's, and, or, you know, a private equity firm goes to market and in, in a sense, they're talking to all their investors at the same time. So that has been, so, you know, Cliff Asnes, um also, you know, in one of his, you know, great tirades at one point when people were talking about fee reduction or like how hedge fund fees were going to come down and they were going to be commoditized. And he had this great thing about how this might be, this is, at, and there's going to be so much demand for hedge funds that fees are going to come down. 
And he was like, um, <laughs> so this is the first time in history that, that massive demand results in commoditization and, and lower fees. And, and, he, and he was right. You know, the guys who the guys who could command it. I mean, if you think about a, a, a hedge fund that was long only tech stocks that had a two and 20, you're getting paid 20 percent of profits over zero and getting paid it annually. It is I mean, it's like just torching money. And people did it voluntarily with hundreds of billions of dollars. <laughs> so, so I think, I think, I think you're right. I look, I think there's going to maybe a point here. If, we, if you do see capacity, you do see meaningful performance. Um, you know, people say, look, we're not going to, you know, we, we, we dropped our fees at the right time. It's, it's a new, it's a new world. We're closing, you know, we're shutting down this fund for our existing clients. We're launching a parallel vehicle. You can come into that, but it's double yeah. the fees. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, um, Let's hope that day one day will 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 come, Andrew. I'm sure I, I, we'll I, suspect, have... I suspect our fees will go down over time because that's the nature of ETFs. But but hopefully we'll, we'll be big enough. We'll see. We'll, 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 we'll yeah. see about that. Yeah. Well. Anyways, we'll yeah. we'll have to continue the conversation. Thank of you. course, uh, we will do that. This was this was fun. This was uh, long, so we appreciate everyone still with us uh, after an hour and fifty minutes. Um, but there was so much to cover and something that I've really been uh, looking forward to. And definitely, this conversation has been. Uh, a great joy. If you do like this conversation in general, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review, uh, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to these conversations. Next week, I'm joined by Jim Kassang, and we're going to discuss another strategy that is often used as part of a diversifying and portfolio protection allocation, namely volatility. Um, so this is your chance to uh, send some questions for me to tackle next week uh, with Jim. Um, and if you can send them early, because we're recording on a Friday, I believe. Anyways, with all of that said, Andrew, thank you for taking time out of your weekend to do this. And from Andrew and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.